So let's, uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 as we continue to make our way through this book. Talking about the history of the early church. And we are in the first section of the book of Acts. The first section of the book of Acts begins in chapter 1 and it ends at the beginning of chapter 8. The first few verses into chapter 8. So we're almost through this first section of the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is about laying the foundations. It's, it's the witness lays its foundations. And these are the things that are true of all churches. We're seeing some things here that are true of the early church and things that are true of, of all churches uh, throughout church history. And we have seen foundational truths about the church. For example, we've seen that the church has a mission. The church has apostolic authority, the church has the Holy Spirit, the church has divine allegiance and power and prayer and discipline, supernatural gifts. We've seen last week that the church has endurance. And this morning and next week, we see that the church has servants. The church has servants. So let's look at verses 1 through 7 of Acts chapter 6. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, and if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint rose by the Hellenists, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Ikenor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You may be seated. And Heavenly Father, we do continue to ask for your, your grace upon us as a church. We thank you for the things that you are, are doing in our church and through us. We pray for us to continue to, to serve you well. We look to you to uh, be kind upon our ministry, upon our, our gospel witness, and empower us uh, according to the work of the Spirit. And it's uh, your Son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How does leadership work within a church? How does a church govern itself? We're seeing some foundational truths about the church from the book of Acts here in these first chapters. Does the book of Acts, does the Bible have some things to say about how a church should govern itself that are, that are foundational, that need to be true of, of all churches at all times throughout church history? We know that different churches handle a lot of practical issues related to governance in different ways. Some churches have congregations decide everything, and so 
everything is a vote, you know, what's the budget, kind of big issues like that, and, and who should the, the pastors be, and th- those things are voted on by the, by the church, but the church also votes on things like what color should the, the paint in the, the nursery be, and, um, you know, how, how long should we, um, you know, how long should we sing each Sunday morning, or pre- I mean, the, everything is, is up for a vote. Some churches say, okay, you know, that, that doesn't work, and so some churches have denominational organizations that exercise great authority. And so, for example, you know, there are some churches in our community that, as they are talking about when to meet and how to meet, the, the church itself isn't deciding those questions. There's another organization outside the church that's, that's speaking into that and says, this is how that's going to go down. Some churches are led by committees. Some churches are led by the, the pastor. The pastor makes all the decisions. And what a terrible, what a terrible way to do it, right? Although there are days that doesn't sound that bad, right? What does God's word have to say? You know, it's, it's interesting. Oftentimes we base our beliefs about how a church should govern itself based upon what we see in, in secular government. We say, okay, this is how secular governments operate. Here's some good and bad things about our government, and so a church should emulate that. Or, or a lot of times, we look at our experiences. Maybe you come from a church where there was a congregational form of, of government, and there was just terrible church split, and so you, you look at that and say, well, that must be bad. And so you say, well, maybe a church needs a strong pastor, or maybe you came from a church with a very authoritarian pastor. You say, man, that's, that's a disaster, and so I, I think that church governance of, that's congregational is the best form of governance. In reality, uh, all human institutions and institutions which humans play a part are, are going to struggle, right? So we shouldn't base it upon human experience. There was a, a famous article a few years ago entitled, Congregational Government is from Satan. Okay? Congregational Government is from, so not very subtle, right, in the, in the title. And the very famous pastor wrote this article and talked about how bad congregational form of government is, and, and uh, then... Uh, Strangely, just a few years later, uh, this church was removed from his position of leadership in the church because of accusations of, of, uh, of abusing the lack of oversight and being too strong of a leader and not handling finance as well and those sorts of things. Now, my goal this morning and next week is not to discuss all the intricacies of, of church government, but, but I believe that there are two primary offices that we see described in the New Testament for the church. And how these, how these offices function exactly and what we call them, it's, it's not always going to be the same in every church. But, but I believe that in every healthy church, we're going to see these two offices functioning in, in some way. And I believe those two offices, biblically, are, are called elders and deacons. Elders and deacons. And we're going to talk more about elders in the weeks to come as we look, at, especially at Acts chapter 20. But this week and next, we're going to begin talking about deacons. Now, we're going to talk about deacons this morning, kind of the context of the overall church. But next week, even more, we'll talk more specifically about deacons and get into some intricacies of that ministry. But I want us to see the importance of this, of this office, of this ministry of, of deacon. 
there are a lot of passages that talk about elder pastors, those shepherds of the church. But oftentimes, because, because deacons are serving in a way in which they are supporting the more upfront ministries, deacons, that, the diaconate, that office of deacon can be less prominent, can, can take a back seat and not receive the attention that it needs to receive. I mean, the model for the deacon ministry occurs here in Acts chapter 6, and they're described as those who are going to serve tables, okay? And so this idea of serving tables is not a glamorous idea for many. And the, the model here is a, a, one of a servant. Thabiti Anyambwale, in his book, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons, writes this. He says, to, to modern sensibilities, serving tables sometimes connotes a low-level demeaning position. A person waits table when he or she waits tables when he or she is working through college or passing time until a career takes off. People regard it as a necessary sacrifice to make ends meet. But how different it is in the Lord's church. The apostles, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, appear to have created an entirely new office in the church for the specific purpose of serving tables. And the loftiness of the office is seen in several ways. He says the loftiness of this office of deacon is seen first of all, in the character of the individuals required to fill it. Here in the text, we see that they are to be men full of the spirit and of wisdom. The loftiness of the office is also seen in the fact that it facilitates the ministry of the word and prayer. That's, that's its goal. And then it's also, the loftiness of the office is also seen in the unifying and strengthening effect it has on the church. This office that we see begun here in Acts 6 unifies the church. The diaconate, Dabiti writes, is important. And a lack, and a lack of, of awareness of the importance of this ministry is going to cause problems in a church. It's going to cause us not to utilize it. It's going to cause us not to support it. A lack of utilizing this ministry is going to cause us to be weak in the word, in the proclamation of the word. It's going to cause needs not to be met. It's going to be sad as, as others don't feel called to this ministry. Here's the main thing I want us to think about this, this week and next. As we look at this text, here's the main thing. God, God gives his church deacons who faithfully serve the church by taking responsibility for meeting the physical needs of the body of Christ for the glory of God. Let me say that again. If you're taking notes here, kids, God gives his church deacons. Deacons are a gift from the church. God gives his church deacons who faithfully serve the church. How do they do that? By taking responsibility for meeting the physical needs of the body of Christ for the glory of God. So we're going to look at a problem and then we're going to look at a solution. And let's begin by looking at the problem. And we see the problem in verses 1 and 2. The problem is, how are physical needs in the church going to be met in a spiritual way? Look at the text. It says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the, the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching 
the word of God to serve tables. Now, what's happening? Look at the context. The context is things are going great in the church. This is a time of incredible growth. We're seeing people come to, to know the Lord, to place their faith in Jesus Christ, to turn from sin. Signs and wonders are being done. This, this is a time of incredible growth in the church. But just as there have been external problems in the church, and just at the beginning of chapter 5, we saw an internal problem. Now we see another internal problem problem within the church. But now it's not just two individuals as it was at the beginning of Acts chapter 5. Now we see that there's, there's this apparent inherent division that exists within the church. The problem is twofold. The first part of the problem is that physical needs are being neglected. Physical needs in the church are being neglected, and they're being neglected due to to partiality, perhaps unintentionally, but due to the sin of partiality. As you look at this text, remember how important it is to God that physical needs are met. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus would teach us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and their affliction. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. Remember in Galatians chapter 2 when we talked about Paul and, and the things that he was working out with the, with the, in the early church. It talks about how he had a conversation with James and Cephas and John. That's Peter and John. And it, it says they seem to be pillars. And in Galatians 2 he says, They perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the, uh, to the circumcised only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. And so the meeting of physical needs is not some sort of optional task for the church. The, the primary mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel, yes, to, to preach the word, yes. But always, always accompanying that, that gospel proclamation is, is the meeting of physical needs, that a person who's been transformed the, by the gospel is going to be a person who is concerned about the physical needs of others. And what happens here is in this important meeting of physical needs, there's, there's this complaint that arises within the church. The Hellenists are complaining because their widows are being neglected. Now, who are the Hellenists? The Hellenists are the, the Greek-speaking Jews. The Hellenists are set apart from the the Hebrews, the, the Aramaic-speaking or Hebrew-speaking Jews. What had probably happened is you had had a, a group of Jews who had been scattered throughout different places of the Roman Empire, and now they are back in Jerusalem. Maybe they're there for a, a short period of time, or maybe as uh, some people got older, they desired to be closer to the temple again. And so now these, these Hellenized, these, these Greek-speaking Jews who adapted many of the culture cultural aspects and language aspects and so forth of, of different places had come back to Jerusalem to be close to the temple. And perhaps they've become close to the temple as they're nearing their end of the life. And so you have a lot more widows there that are, that are in this category of Greek speakers. And these Greek-speaking Jews who've become, become part of the church, these, these Hellenists, their needs are, are not being met, they're, they're, they're saying. Our, our widows are being overlooked. You're taking good care of the 
that those that are kind of, of of greater status, those who are closer to the temple. In fact, as you think about Jewish social life, the closer you are to the temple, the more, the more godly you are. And the further away from the temple you are, the, the less godly you are. And so there's kind of this priority these Hebrew widows are receiving at the expense of the Hellenists. That's, that's the complaint. What's happening here is the sin of partiality. Now, what's the sin of, of partiality? That's whenever I place a greater or lesser value on a person or a group over another person or group. And oftentimes, what happens with partiality is I believe that the group of which I'm a part of, that the somewhat arbitrary group that I'm a part of, is of greater value than whatever group you're a part of or someone else is a part of. This isn't exactly racism, but there's some parallel here, or or let's put it this way, that the same root sin is engaged here, the same heart attitude of partiality is the same heart attitude we see in the sin of racism. And the the belief here is, okay, my, 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 again, arbitrarily selected group has greater value than, than your group, and it could be based on the language we speak, based upon our skin color, based upon our socioeconomic status, it could be based on a, a number of arbitrary characteristics, but I'm placing greater value on, on my group than your group, that's the, the heart issue here. And you can see why a church would be an incredible danger where the sin of partiality exists where we begin to, to separate ourselves into different groups and to say, okay, my group has greater value than your group, we see that the, 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 the truth of the gospel, that all of us are in need of God's grace, is in danger. There's a couple of, of heart, heart attitudes. Well, let me put it this way. There, there are a couple of fruits that this heart attitude produces. This hard attitude of partiality has, has some fruit that it produces. Let's say that I'm, I'm part of this Hebraic group, and I'm, I've lived here in Jerusalem. What are some of, if I have the sin of partiality in my heart, what are some of the sinful fruits that that can produce? I can have this attitude. I can say, okay, um, I'm, I'm unwilling to really seriously consider the concerns of these Hellenists. I, I can look at this hard attitude can produce a tendency to Create excuses to dismiss concerns. Yeah, I know they're complaining, but man, think about all that we've given them. This this sin of partiality can produce the fruit of highlighting deficiencies in the group to to explain inequalities. Yeah, I, I know things aren't exactly equal with this group, but you know what? They're the ones who moved from wherever they were and came to this community. Of of course they can expect to, to face some hardships. We can, whenever we're part of this, this, if we're part of the Hebraic group, one of our sinful heart attitudes can be to say, you know what, um, there's something intrinsic to the people in this group that creates the inequality. There, there's something deficient in them and them as, as an image bearer of, of God that causes them to not have the things that they need to have. It can cause, this heart attitude of partiality can cause us to be indifferent to suffering within the group of the other. It can cause us to paint the other with a broad brushstroke. Hellenists always act like that. That group, that's just how they are. We're willing to see ourselves as individuals within our group. Oh, 
I'm not like those Hebrews. I'm not like those white people. But we paint the other with a, a broad brushstroke. Well, that's how, that's how those people are. Now, on the, on, if you're part of the Hellenists, what could be a, a sinful heart response as you, as you show the sin of partiality? There can be a, a sense of, of bitterness. There can be a, a temptation to overreact. There can be a, a temptation to justify sinning against those who've wronged you. They didn't treat me right. I have no obligation to treat them right. I can paint that other side with a broad brush, but see my own group as, as individuals. The key here, the key here is that the church as it embraces the sin of partiality, doesn't see itself as one. It doesn't believe that it has an obligation to care and provide for one another. The church here is in danger. There's an unwillingness to be at peace. There's a lack of willingness to say, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to be wronged by you because I love you. So the sin of partiality is in danger of, of, of ripping apart the church here. And, and the, the people recognize, look, this, this, can't, this can't be. We need to make sure that we are treating the, the widows from both these groups equally and the apostles. So that's, that's one part of the problem. The other part of the, the problem is the apostles in the church lack the ability to meet the need. Now, again, we're going to talk more about elders when we come to Acts 20. And in this passage, it's, it's important to note, neither the word elder or deacon appears in verses 1 through 7. But we do have kind of two broad categories of ministry that we see described throughout the New Testament. That's ministries of word and ministries of deed. Ministries of word are focused on, on teaching, on proclaiming the gospel, on helping people understand doctrine. This, those are the teaching ministries. Deed ministries help support that ministry as they meet physical needs. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And as you go through the New Testament, you see these offices, word and deed, being, being established as the, the offices of elder and deacon. 1 Peter 4.11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. So there's the, the, the word ministry. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. There's the deed ministry. You come to Philippians 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, that's the elders, and the deacons. Now, the word ministries are the ministries of the elders. The apostles here have the oversight of the teaching ministry, and they're going to turn it over to the elders. We kind of see the beginnings of that in Acts 15. And We'll talk more about this as we go into Acts chapter 20. Maybe I'll talk a little bit about it more next week as well. But as we look at the office of elder, we see a lot of different words in the New Testament used to describe this office. We see the word elder. We see the word shepherd or pastor. We see the word overseer. All of these are, are words that are used to describe this, this same office. And there are passages that use the words interchangeably. So all this is describing the same office, pastor, elder, all the same thing. In fact, one of the things I'm trying to help our, our church grow in is, is seeing both uh, lay elders and paid elders as the same position. So we often call the, the guys who are paid to be elders pastors, those who that devote themselves to this full time. We call them pastors. Our nomenclature is to call 
uh, people who aren't being paid to do this ministry, elders. Really, they're both pastors, they're both elders, and we can use those terms interchangeably. But they, the, the apostles here say, look, we, we can't do this, and we need others who can help us. And they're going to establish these first, I think, servants or, or deacons. That's, that's where we, we get the word deacon from the word servant. The church is in danger of experiencing division. The apostles can't meet this need. And so they, they say, look, we need, we need to set apart uh, others to help us so we can focus on preaching the word of God. Later they'll say in, in prayer. As we think about the application of this problem here, here here's what I would encourage us to do. A couple, a couple thoughts of application. One, we need to be aware of the sin of partiality, Right? Our job as believers is to not make things completely fair in the world or even in the church. Our task is demonstrate demonstrate the grace of the gospel in our service for one another. I'm, I'm far more desirous of winning you over as a brother or sister in Christ than I am of, of getting you to acknowledge the ways that you've mistreated me if I'm a believer who rightly understands the gospel in my own life. I recognize that I, I'm a person who needed God's grace, and so I'm, I'm far less concerned about arbitrary categories of groups and say, well, you've done this, and they've done that, and until everything's fair, I'm going to be angry at you. And th- Look, I am far more desirous of being wronged if it will win you over to the gospel than I am of getting life to be fair. And so my, my goal as I, as I meet people's physical needs is, is, is it's a gospel focus. I'm not about the sin of partiality. But I want to I continually demonstrate the grace of the gospel as I lavish physical and emotional and spirit, spiritual gift of the gospel on others. That'd be one application. Secondly, we need as a church to grasp the importance of word-based ministries. The apostles here say, look, if, if we fail to be a, a church, a group that's proclaiming the gospel and teaching the gospel, we failed in our fundamental task. And so without a knowledge of God and an understanding of the gospel and the word of God, everything else, all of the ministries fall apart, which means what? As a church, we need to be careful about the expectations we, we place on elders, on pastors. Now, you know, I've seen some pastors take this and say, well, you know what, because I have to spend all my time studying the Bible, I, I don't have time to help out at a work day, and I, I don't have time to, to go visit people in the hospital because i got to be focusing on studying the Word, studying the Word, studying the Word. Now, it is certainly true that a, a pastor elder needs to be careful. Okay? I need to be careful about spending so much time setting up tables that I'm not focused on the ministries that I need to do. But at the same time, uh, pa- pastors need to be in- engaged in the, in the work of, of caring and shepherding for others. It, it's, it's a shepherding ministry. But the, the second application, we need to grasp the importance of word ministries. We don't, we don't want to neglect the word. A third application here would, would be for those of you with needs. There is a desire that the church should have to meet the physical needs of others. 
And so if you're an individual here this morning who, who's struggling with, with some physical needs, God has given you the gift of, of deacons and other servants who desire to meet those needs. The church needs to know what your needs are. And so be careful to communicate those to the church. And I would also add this application. We need to commit to caring for others. And perhaps some of you even need to aspire to the, the ministry of, of overseeing care for others, this ministry of the deacon. So that's, that's the problem. There's a need to meet these physical needs, and the solution is godly servants. Now, we're going to look at these, these godly servants more next week, but let me just kind of finish the story here, just, just very briefly here. Let's, let's look at verse 3. As the church is made aware of this problem, the, the apostles summon everybody together and say, okay, um, let's, let's do this. I want you to, to pick out from among you seven men of good repute, uh, men that are full of the spirit, those men that are full of wisdom, and we're going to point them to this, this duty. It's going to be a ministry, and we're going to continue to devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And then they select these, these seven individuals, these seven men, and uh, the first person they mention is Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and then they, they mention these, these others as well. And they set, the congregation sets these before the apostles, verse 6, they pray, they lay their hands on them, and these men begin to do the ministry to which God had called them to do. And what happens? It says, the word of God continued to increase. The, the goal for which God has established his church continues here. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is what needs to happen within a church. There are Many different structures that a, that a church can, can set up. There are bylaws you can write. There are constitutions you can adopt as a church. There are structures you can put in place for accountability. All those things. But every church, yes, it, it needs pastor elders. But every church also needs deacons who are modeling for the church and helping the church fulfill the function of caring for one another. God gives his church deacons who faithfully serve the church by taking responsibility for meeting the physical needs of the church for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for how you have entrusted this, this word, the gospel, to us. And, and Father, now as we next week look at deacons and the characteristics of deacons, Lord, help us all aspire to this, this deacon ministry, this, this servant ministry. Help us as a church to be a church that is absolutely passionate for the truth, that, that knows good doctrine and is able to articulate deep truths about you. But Father, as we know these truths, help us to live them out in our, in our lives as we care for one another. Father, I, I, I pray for those who have some, some special needs, some, some physical needs this morning. I, I pray that you'd give them the ability to, to reach out to help us meet those needs of the church, help us to be faithful in that endeavor. We love you. We desire for you to be glorified here. Thank you for this, this day. Thank you for this time of, of worship that you've given us, this season of worship you've given us uh, here in our parking lot. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't need a, a building in which to be worshiped in order for worship to occur. We thank you that you are everywhere. But Father, we also thank you for the provision of a building, and we thank you that, that next week we can come together inside uh, this place that you've given us and in worship you. Help us to, to do that transition well for your glory. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.